0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. It's time
1: to declare in America we walk back down. And we don't have to use violence. We don't have to use use lies. We don't have to use meanness. And we don't have to be an insurrection. All we gotta do a resurrection. Oh,
0: oh, God. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II is a leading prophetic voice for social and economic justice in this country. A powerful public speaker, legendary organizer, teacher, and author. He's a very sought after interview guest, and I am thrilled that we will be talking to him on this week's show about his work and his insights for what is needed from American Public Religion at such a time as this. With this week's episode, we start a new era for state of belief. We're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope The important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Now, this is very important. The podcast feed that you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We have so much planned for the weeks and months ahead. I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, Thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, today is the day. So please do, and information on how you can help keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. Now, before I introduce my first guest, I'm afraid I need to share some very sad news. On Wednesday, June 7th, the longtime original host of State of Belief, Interfaith Alliance President Emeritus, Rev. Dr. C. Welton Gaddy, passed away at the age of 81. Welton started this program in 2006 and hosted his last episode on May 21st, 2022, That wasn't the plan. He had hoped to be back. Welton loved state of belief. He loved the conversations he conducted for it. He loved hearing from listeners and he didn't feel ready to step down. But with his beloved wife, Judy, facing serious health challenges, Welton set everything else aside to become her full-time caregiver, hoping things would get better, but they didn't. Welton himself was struck down by poor health earlier this year and the recent months have been very difficult. Supported by his beloved faith community at Northminster Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana, a congregation he flew home to pastor most weekends, even as he served out his 17 year tenure at the helm of Interfaith Alliance in Washington, DC. There's little we do around here that hasn't been influenced by the example and inspiration of Welton Gaddy, and that holds true across a wide swath of the interfaith landscape, he will be deeply missed. And now to my guest, the Reverend Dr. William Barber II is a leading voice for faith-based social and economic justice. Many Americans first got to know him as leader of the inspiring Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. Today, he's president of Repairers of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. He's also a pastor and founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School, where he's also a professor. Bishop Barber is the author of four books. Most recently, We Are Called to Be a Movement. What a list. Good morning. I think that people who have seen you on the national stage do not understand how the pastoral and the one, you know, basically loving people as uh as a religious figure as a follower of Jesus how that informs why you do all the work that you do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels to me really important that you have this pastoral grounding. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's connected to the prophetic?
1: Well, you know, I think about that in a number of different ways. You know, pastors, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, are called to take care of the sheep as under-shepherds for Jesus, who is the shepherd. But, when you care for sheep, you have to care for them in all of their ways. You have to care when they cry, when they're fearful, when they are uh, hunted and hounded by forces around them. You have to try to, if you will, lead them into green pastures. And, and, and besides still waters, you got to walk with them through the valleys and the shadows of death. You know, that's part of what pastoring does. So a pastor really uh, if you do it right is sensitized to what the people are going through um when Ezekiel who was a prophet pastor if you will the first thing the lord t- told him to do uh before he could go out and challenge the injustices of society uh you know over in Ezekiel 22 he said he he challenges and says that the um the um, politicians had become like wolves and but what was worse was that there were a group of priests i.e. pastors who had chosen the side of the powerful and the Mm -hmm. Mm wolves rather than caring about the people and because of that the whole society was out of whack because of that there was injustice and extortion and 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 then he says later on God says, I look for someone who would stand in the gap. But before all of that, God told Ezekiel lay down among the people for seven days. And the imagery there is that you you get your authority to speak against the injustices of the world will come out of your positioning with the people.
2: Uh,
0: It reminds me, you know, the history of my own great-grandfather, Walter Rauschenbusch, who was a pastor first and he was pastoring people in in Hell's Kitchen and it changed the way he viewed the Bible it changed everything for him because his congregation was being crushed by industrialism and capitalism and all of a sudden he went back to the Bible and said oh, all the stuff I didn't see as you so perfectly put it laid down with the people and stayed there and saw with new eyes I mean, I just think that
1: my father used to is that there are some, who else are pastors? There are some sermons that you don't even see until you are in the position uh, with the people. There's a pastoral discernment. Yes. And if you if you look at the life of Jesus, He came and dwelt among them. When you look at the movement of justice in this country, you look at, for instance, um, Garrison, who was not only uh, uh, who was an abolitionist, but also was a pastor, or you look at Charles Swinning who led the Second Great Awakening, who went in his revival said, you have to give your life to Jesus and, and be against slavery, grew out of him being a pastor. Martin King was a pastor. Walter Roussel was, as you said, was a pastor. And so for me, being a pastor for all of these years, you know, I, I wrote something one time that to be a pastor on the one hand, but then not be concerned about the public policy injustices that are occurring and happening to the people is to engage in pastoral malpractice of (sighs) doctoral degree in pastoral care and public policy. And so, as a pastor these years, for me, people not having health care and dying because they're not having health care is not eerie. It is actually a practice. I have had to bury those people. Yes, as, well as other pastors, people struggling because they don't have a living wage, right? And all of the trauma that it creates inside the family. I've mm. had to pastor the people and see that people um, having being shot, you know, wrongly by the police, or or dying from what now we know is the fourth leading cause of death today, which is poverty, higher than homicide. Oh so my God! When we stand and speak, it comes out of uh, uh, that experience. Uh, yes, and and I think it gives an added uh, credibility. I'm not suggesting other folk don't have it, but there is a place from which, when you are a pastor, a priest, and prophet, and called to operate in those that those realms, you see the world and the people at a different level. Which is one of the reasons why I'm so
2: deeply concerned. Right. I see so-called. Uh,
1: People calling themselves evangelical, and they claim to be pastors, but they're so isolated from the people somehow or another that they just ignore the injustices and even ignore, lastly, what Jesus said should be the ultimate um, uh, philosophy of someone claiming to speak in his name or to be a pastor. This is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. You no know, that that was his opening ministry statement, and at the end, his closing statement was, "You're gonna be judged, the nations will be judged by how you treat the least of these about mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, uh, it, it's troubling, yeah, he just could open that way and end that way. more than two thousand scriptures in the Bible speak to how we treat the least of these, the poor, those are the margins, and yet recently. A couple of years ago, the Pew Foundation did a study, and poverty did not even register in what was being preached by pastors in the American pulpit.
0: I mean, it, it is. Uh, I think it's pastoral malfeasance is is an excellent word for it. I let me be among the many who are taking this moment to congratulate you on your ministry. I, I know that that is a uh, a road that is hard gratifying um beautiful and 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 terribly um it just filled with emotion because you are living with the emotion of your people of your congregation so congratulations on all those years of ministry you come to this with a prophetic vision and a pastoral care where did you get that? Where would you say, if you went, you know, looked back on your life and said, when was the first time I kind of began to see this, this with the eyes that I have that are continue to guide me today? Can you just bring us back a little bit into the formation of Bishop Barber?
1: Well, I was born on August 30th, 1963, two days after the March on Washington. My father was scheduled to be in Washington, D.C., but did not go because the doctors said that my mother would uh, deliver, and she did, in fact, go into labor uh, on the 27th, and then it stopped. The labor pains kind of stopped. Now, the running um, joke in my family was that I said, uh, let's see how this march on Washington goes before I come into the world <laughs> 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 On the 27th. And, you know, when I, after I was born, 15 days later, uh, racists were blowing up babies in Sunday school, mm. when the, the, the uh, uh, Birmingham, the Buckingham yeah. at the 16th Street Baptist Church. And later I would learn that my father, who was a pastor, uh, my mother wrestled deeply with that. In other words, what should be uh, his role? Uh, I was just a child when they made a decision as a baby to come back to the South, come back to the South as a pastor. Uh, he was called and asked would he come back and help desegregate schools because even though it was 63 and the Brown decision had happened happen in 54, schools in the South were still segregated. And my father made the pastor a decision to do that, to come back. So in some ways, I was born into the movement and into a family that made a decision from the perspective of being a pastor, being a preacher, because my father had gone to Indianapolis, trained at Butler's Butler's uh, College and a Christian Theological Seminary. And later on, I would read um, his final paper that he wrote in seminary, where he talked about how he had to make these decisions where he would use his, based on the calling and not just on a career. Mm. Mm. I grew up in my home was where people would come, uh, people in the community that were fighting for labor rights and standing against police brutality and dealing with, trying to desegregate the school. So as a kid, I was around that all the time. I was around there all the time. And I saw in my father, that you could not separate Jesus from justice, Jesus from having a deep concern or what was not just happening 700 miles from you or 70 miles from what was happening right in your immediate area. You know, my father did most of his ministry in eastern North Carolina. It's not a media area. It's not somewhere where the cameras were there. So I learned, too, that this work, you should be doing it, not because you get notoriety but because you have a sense of calling and a sense of anointing um, to do this work. I think, so for my father, one of the first place. The second place is when I went to seminary. I had the opportunity to um, study under people like Dr. William Turner, who's a mm-hmm. dermatologist at Duke. And one of the things Dr. Turner taught in some of his uh, writings was that uh, you can call yourself whatever you want to call it, or name your salvific experience, saved, born again, washed in the blood, uh, 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 baptized by fire. He said, but if whatever happens does not produce a quarrel with the world and justices, then your claim of Christian spirituality is termed the suspect. And he was both a professor and a pastor as well. It was also in those days that I got to um, uh, uh, study Paul Tillich, you know, and his questions and when Paul Tillich says you can claim everything about what you believe is your God, but really your God is whatever you claim when you feel the threat of non-being. But Tillich hmm. also wrote a lot about what he had to do in the face of Hitler and the injustice and how why you know. He could not be silent uh, on matters of of injustice. And while while our theology has to deal with and address the various um, of non being, um, you know, I met Herzog, who was a professor. Wow. uh, God walk and God talk. That we have to have more than God talk, God walk. You know, I was have had a chance to study under people like Cedric Lincoln, great Christian sociologist, and he wrote a little book uh, called The Continuing American Dilemma that was in addition to um, Marty book on the American, where he talked about the difference between Christianity and Americanity,
2: mm. uh,
1: required to, to challenge the Americanity that attempts to subvert the flag over the scriptures.
0: <laughs> oh, well, we, you know, don't we, don't we see some of that right now? I mean, with Christian nationalism and, you know, people, people waving Jesus banners as they attack the Capitol and you know try to hunt down legislators. I mean, it, that that's a real
1: thing. That's right, and I think we uh, see Lincoln's even more today, on uh, what he talks about. The last couple of things about was. Interestingly enough, my grandmother helped shape. Now she was not a pastor; she was one of these pious mothers in the church. But on some weekends, she would get up, and uh, I would watch her put on an old apron, and then she would put some claws in that apron. She would put a bottle of oil. She would some, take some money and pin it to her. And one uh, time, she was doing that, and I said, Grandmama, where are you going?" She said, I'm going to do my Christian duty. So what do you mean your Christian duty? She said, boy, I'm going to hope somebody. Now, I I knew that I didn't correct her. I thought her grandma was off. I held it (laughs) because, in my community, you just didn't talk back to old people. But later on, I learned that her theology was, practically, that when I go to people's houses as a Christian, if they need the house clean, she would take those rags and clean it. If they needed a little piece of money because they were poor, she'd put something in their hand. If they needed prayer because they were struggling with sickness, she'd take out her anointing oil and anoint them. In a sense, she was helping, but she was also hoping.
2: Mm. What, what,
0: what was her name? What was your grandmother's name? I want to lift up her name.
1: Lettuce and Keys. That was mm. her name. Lettuce, L-E-T-T-I-C-E, and Keys. Uh, Robinson Moore. She was married uh, to two preachers in her lifetime. Both of them died. One, my mm. uh, grandfather died in the in the forties, and then her second husband died from the pressures of the depression and mm. uh, and working and whatnot. But my grandmother uh, was said she was hoping some. And then I the- just love that to in fact help people and to be in their midst is a way of producing hope. Is actually a day of, that is of hope and lift, give, giving people hope. So right. I mean, those are kind of the three areas: my seminary training, my early walk with my father, the practicality mm-hmm. of my grandmother, and then lastly, the first church I pastored mm-hmm. in, uh-huh. in 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 Martinsville, Virginia. I hadn't been there hardly any time, and we found out that a company in that community had been bringing in, at night, on on trucks, toxic waste, putting uh, barrels of it out less than seventy five hundred 100 feet from the back of homes in that community. And we, we we had to challenge that. I was a pastor. I found out that people were, were getting sick, that the local company there had blocked the union rights of the people. I had members that would work 30-some years And they would get $3 for every year they worked as their retirement, a watch. And many of them would die uh, not long after they finished work because they worked in the textile mill. And the company had done everything it could to challenge them having union rights. And right in that space, standing over some of those caskets and burying people and, 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 and seeing the pain and the tears, it was made clear to me that there's no way you could be a pastor and have an incarnate presence, if you will, in a
0: community, and ignore the injustices that were surrounding it. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was a theologian. She, before <laughs> I ever came to there, she- I am so glad we can lift her up today. Can you give me a sense right now where you stand and all the work that you do? Where are we going as a country? How? Where do you see the movement or the movements... Um, that are afoot, both for good and for, I'll use the word, evil.
1: Yeah. I think we're in a great tension right now. Mm. I've heard about the country, and it's one of the reasons why I'm trying to commit myself with many others to this work of of, uh, what we call bringing into existence a third reconstruction. And, you know, in this country, the first reconstruction post-slavery was led, in middle sense, by preached moral figures who said we have to do more than just set people free and end the war of of the Civil War. We have to engage in active transformation of the country. We have to reshape our constitutional focuses uh, particularly in state houses. We have to address the the, the, the vestiges of slavery and racism in policy ways. And so you had, you know, those who had been the abolitionists became the Reconstructionists. Now, we also know that that Reconstruction uh, that said we're going to provide education for people in voting rights and, and, and basic wages was attacked viciously by those who claimed that they were here to redeem the country and make it great again and take mm. it back to its rightful place of being in under white control and so the first reconstruction was torn apart by violence and political uh, manipulation. Uh, then we have a second reconstruction 1954, the Brown decision Uh, said separate but equals unconstitutional, but also we had in that time frame uh, uh, more and more, uh, some seekers 54, but I even see the beginnings of the second Reconstruction rooted in the social gospel movement in the Mm early 1900s, and and, and that began to challenge uh, party. Uh, And while some of the social gospel movement didn't say a lot about race per se, it was so powerful that it challenged Theodore Roosevelt made him, in some ways, do his bull speech and way and, uh, and mm-hmm. up and see the pulpit as a bully pulpit, the, the presidency as a bully pulpit. And, uh, Francis Perkins took her social gospel teachings right on into the White House as Labor Secretary and pushed Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then, you know, there was a big pushback. Uh, Kevin Cruz talks about it in his book One Nation Under God, that where they actually, the, the corporations of this country, uh, went out and hired... Uh, Preachers to to take over Christian pulpits and to uh, to reshape theology in some kind of warped form of Calvinism that basically said if you're good you'll be rich if you're bad you'll be poor so therefore you don't need policies to address poverty people just need to do better uh, morality and so there was a pushing back but then you get the civil rights movement you get you know Dr King and so many others. Who 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 began to challenge racism and sin, not just as a fail a policy failure, but as sin. And so, from from the death of Emmett Till in '55, uh, and then uh, the standing up of Rosa Parks, and right on through to the Civil Rights Movement, uh, you get out of that movement you get Medicaid expansion and focuses on wages and unions and, and voting rights and civil rights, led by clergy, who said these issues are not just political. I, I never, I ask people, don't ever just start, for instance, with Dr. King, with I Have a Dream, start with his first sermon in Montgomery. The mm. where he says, if we are wrong, the prophets are wrong. If we're wrong, Jesus was wrong. If we're wrong, Amos was wrong. He, 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 he said that this work towards civil rights was not just a political, that fundamentally racism is a form of idolatry and self-worship uh, and, and that it had to be challenged. It was not of God. And, you know, then in his, in his last sermon, uh, he says the night before he was shot, it's all right to talk about long robes and, and honey and the streets paved with gold over yonder, but people need some clothes and some housing in the slums down here. And nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. And so we have these two—I reconstruct- think right now we're in the middle of a third reconstruction. On the one hand, you have an aggressive, uh, uh, mean-spirited, uh, if you will, push backwards. And, and once again, we see what we saw in slavery and we see what we saw in Jim Crow area is an attempt to hijack the faith and wrap it around injustice and make the injustice right. And so you see for, as the so-called religious nationalists who call themselves uh, evangelicals, my good friend uh, 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 Jim, um, you know it well, it'll come to me in a minute, but he talks about the the emphasis on white evangelicals is more on white, but I think even beyond the race, what concerns me is this notion that so-called evangelicals, which I get bothered by because I'm an evangelical, but I'm an evangelical rooted in Luke 4.18, not in saying that evangelicalism is being against gay people, against abortion, for tax cuts, for guns, and for a particular party called the party. That's not evangelicalism. (laughs) That is another attempt to hijack the faith and use the faith in the, the service of injustice and meanness and racism and and homophobia and and and, and xenophobia and all of those things right That's one hand, and it's very serious. I mean you saw how people attempted to to put faith and religion as education for January 6 unbelievable right unbelievable, and how they're using it. In so many other ways to justify so many other parts. But on the other hand, we have this rise. If you look, uh, and it's not just in the church, but, I, but in, for instance, the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for moral Revival, just undergirded by the work we do at Repairs of the Breach. People are coming. Last June, June the 18th of last year, over 150,000 uh, people, millions are online. Over 25 religious denominations came together with the poor on Pennsylvania Avenue to say to this nation, for your sake, for the soul of this nation, address systemic poverty. Yeah, 40 million people in this country living in poverty. Fourthly, you can that you must address racism, you must address ecological devastation, devouring health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. So, we right. attention a tension moment right at the turn of all. I'm very concerned because, as always, the false prophets have a lot of money, yeah, and a lot of media, and sometimes the corporate media helps them rather than than critiques them the way it should be. But as I move across this country, and I see people from the hills of West Virginia to the Delta of Mississippi to to California, to the Carolinas, to Kentucky and uh, Kansas, farmers and all over. There is something rising. Uh, uh, there's a there's a stirring in the Valley of Dry Bones, if you will. Mm. There, a kind of resurrection of the spirit of justice and love and, and and Jesus and 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 wanting to say, we will not give up on the goal for yeah. On the, on the, yeah. <laughs>
0: But I think I think that you know, part of what you named, in addition to all of the, the hopefulness, is that there we are up against a very well funded, coordinated uh and uh, intentional effort to wrest religion, to take away religion um from the people and use it as a force for nationalism, for for violence. Greed. I mean, people are really. It, I, I think you're, you've named. You named. We are. We are at one of those moments where America is going to is going to make a decision, or a decision will be made for us. Coming up next, more with the Reverend Doctor William Barber II. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website, starting with this episode. We're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. Now, this is very important. The podcast feed you're listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com newpodcast new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead. I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. I'm Rev. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is the Rev. Dr. William Barber II of the Poor People's Campaign. I'm going to take a moment right now uh, to make sure that everybody does know about the Poor People's Campaign and the Repairs of the Breach. Um, these are both area. These are both incredible organizations and movements that our listeners can get involved with, and I encourage everyone to do so because we need to show up for one another. And I'm I'm going to just say something that I don't think everybody fully understands this is a movement made up of all kinds of people from different religious backgrounds, from different um, races, from different uh, genders and and sexual orientation. I so appreciate that, you know, this is one of the things that is so remarkable about you, Bishop Barber, is that you, you are not willing to throw some people under the bus for the benefit, um, for an immediate, you know, maybe perceived benefit. Uh, and I just think that, you show us what organizing can be, but also organizing with integrity and with a sense of love for people. And I just want to say thank you for that. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how you're understanding the election and the ways that people of good faith and goodwill should be showing up, not only for like who we select as, as our, our representatives, but also just how we show up. Um, to support people who need support in the election process. And, and I know that you um, and Reverend Liz have, have both been involved with that. So can you talk talk a little bit about how you're understanding this election season we're about to go into and hopefully give us a good word because there's a lot of grimness out there.
1: And, and there always has been. I think I would just take one second and say, you know, the Redemption Movement, for instance, in the 1800s was highly funded. Uh, it was, and, and, and when Frederick Douglass once time said, because I love the Christianity of Jesus, I must hate the religion of the slave master, he knew that that was highly funded. And when the Dred Scott decision came down, that said a black man had no yeah. rights white people ever had to pay attention to. But Frederick Douglass, a person of faith, a month later said, as monstrous as this decision is, he said, I must tell you that every attempt to allow the, uh, the uh, abolition movement has only served to intensify our agitation. And and so at every point, um, uh, when those four little girls were killed in Birmingham, Dr. King did one of their funerals and talked about it as hard, sometimes life's as hard as steel, but they speak to us from the grave and they tell us it wasn't just Obama that killed them, but it was that everybody, black or white, who stood on the sideline and did not speak out uh, and did not challenge also kill them and so it's our time uh, to stand up and to be counted among those who care for love and justice and righteousness. And so you're very right that, you know, Kevin Cruz talks about the amount of money that was put in, the the, the religious effort in the 1940s uh, to, to, to stop if you will, the social gospel movement, to stop. So that we faced what well, what I want to say, Paul, to folk, is that we faced a lot of this before. And so what I'm saying to people of faith is time to be people of faith. Our faith was born for this. Faith is born for standing up in the tough times. And there's always a need for prophetic movement. There's, you know, one of my professors taught me the prophets in the Bibles always rose and the priests weren't doing their job. And many of the prophets had, were priests, but they stood up in times of crisis. And this is a time we must stand up, I think, for instance, if America does address this issue of, of systemic racism and poverty and all of the death and the violence that to poverty, what we saw in January 6 could be tiddlywinks, because imagine 140 million people just losing hope, or 40 million of folks just losing hope, and just saying, this country doesn't care. And two years ago, you know, we had a vote in the Congress on living wages. 49 Republicans and two Democrats said no to 50 million people getting a living wage, even though the minimum wage had not been increased since 2009. Uh, that's for 13 years now, for 14 years. We also saw voting rights being brought for, and 49 Republicans and two Democrats said no to restoring the Voting Rights Act in a democracy. Yes. So these are very troubling times. but we have to look at the fact always there's this call. To stand up. And here's some things we need to know about the election. First of all, when we look at American democracy right now, much of what we see happening is not because people are winning, but because they're cheating through redistricting, through voter suppression, that many of the, even when we look at something like the election of Trump, we're talking about 80,000 votes in three states that basically put him in office. Secondly, we are in a moment where poor and low wealth people now represent 30% of the electorate, plus 30% of the electorate, and in battleground states where the margin of victory is between uh, three and six percent over 40% of the electorate. Thirdly, we know that there's not a state in this country if 25% of poor and low wealth people would be organized around an agenda to address systemic racism and pay a living wage and guarantee people health care and address the enormous unguarded sums of money we put still in, put into the war economy. That twenty five percent could fundamentally shift every election. In fact, we've got data now that shows that in North Carolina it's nineteen percent. Nineteen percent of poor nowhere voters who are already registered, who have not voted, who just said, I'm not I don't care anymore because they don't see change, and they don't have politicians coming and visiting them and talking about poverty and these issues, if they were to say, whether they talk or not, we're going to stand up and participate, 19% of those who didn't vote could, re- could would overcome any marginal victory in the last two elections. In Georgia, is 7%. Florida is 4%. Michigan is
0: 1%. What you're talking about here is these are communities who do not feel like politicians are paying attention to them. So they're sitting it out. But the potential here, if politicians were to take their concerns seriously, it could transform the election.
1: And so what we have to build is a movement, because movements change everything. And it's normal electoral politics, but when you have a movement, and we have to remember, for instance, take the Edmunds Pettus Bridge and the movement that grew out of the church in 65. It wasn't an election year. Everybody who had been elected then... Had already said where they stood on the issue of voting of, of right even Lyndon Baines in the former president. But the movement changed the atmosphere and the political atmosphere up in and mm-hmm. they got passed in a non-election year what the politicians had already said they weren't going to do. What I'm saying is, people of faith who, who understand, you know, faith of the mustard seed, and who understand that there are these realities in the Bible, the, 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 the dry bones analysis, the, 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 what it Psalms 1,18 says the stones that the builders rejected and now become the chief cornerstone. Well, we're in that moment The poor and low wealth people and their allies, religious and otherwise, make up a powerful rejected stone that can now be the chief cornerstone in the building of a new society. Mm-hmm. And if the people who don't vote well, I've gone all this country. We've done studies and critical data. The first reason is not voter suppression. It is nobody talks to us. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in whether it's in Harlan, Kentucky, when I spent time with people, or whether it's in El Paso, Texas, or in Ohio, the number one reason poor, low-income persons of any race and color who don't vote don't vote. Because they said nobody cares about it. Our in community, a politician, hasn't visited us, Democrat or Republican, in 30 years. But mm. Virginia, meeting with women who every Tuesday sell tacos so they can get enough money in their community fund to help one another during their menstrual cycles afford the the, 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 the um, uh, uh, feminine things that they need. These women, some of them had sat out. They said, that's nobody cares about us. Mm. We're going in those communities and saying, but wait a minute. What if the issue is not so much not whether they care about you, but but that you have the power to reshape, to be the core of a new reality? What if you have the power to be like the Valley of Travel? What if you have the power to bring a political res- uh, 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 Pentecost into reality? What if, mm. what if it's not about Democrat, Republican, but about our faith, about who we are as people and people? Are beginning to see that. And I just left a tour with Bernie Sanders. Uh, he asked me to go on a three state tour South, South Carolina, uh, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee to talk about living wages, moral issue, not as a Democrat, Republican, or liberal or conservative, but to talk about what the scriptures say, what the Constitution says about the laborers worthy of their hire and paying people living wage and and loosing the chains of evil, which is what Isaiah says when you don't pay people a living wage, the audiences were packed with white folk, brown folk, Latino folk, gay folk, straight folk, young folk. And I was amazed at the number of young folk. And here I am a preacher talking to these, I'm looking at these young faces and people saying that these young folk don't have spirituality. And I hear them saying, amen. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm walking them through the scriptures, right? And I'm walking right them through the Constitution. It's listen, not, listen, they're this, like, you know, religious. They just yeah. don't want to be a part of the religion of injustice.
0: Exactly. I I, I remember uh, you know offering the commencement at, at Colgate Rochester uh, Crozier Divinity School up there, and I just said, you know. I'm happy people being whoever they want, but my problem is people, ha- a lot of people out there have not met the Jesus that I know because the other, there's another voice that's being so loud that's turning people off. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not trying to use this as an evangelical moment. I just think what you're offering them is actually, at least they can meet someone who represents the faith. And I, I, I certainly, um, I certainly appreciate that. I did want to have a chance to, ask you about kind of the future and this Yale center for public theology and public policy. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about like how that happened and how you're,
1: what (laughs) I got in trouble years ago. Oh, did you one morning and I asked the Lord if he would allow me to have the ability to touch at least 10 to 20 ministers in my lifetime clergy Uh and hopefully be able to mentor them in a way that they would be able to do what I try to do even better. Uh, Not to train them to be, uh, I'll put a label on it, but just to be Christian pastors and to take a serious look at at what, as I say, more than 2,000 scriptures in the Bible talk about how our faith and true evangelicalism have to be connected to what we do for the least of these and how we challenge systems. I mean... You know, I carry with me all the way I go the Poverty and Justice Bible. It's the Bible that has all the scriptures marked, and that some young folk once, one time, cut all the passages out that had to do with love and justice and mercy toward at least the end. The Bible literally fell apart. So I keep that Bible with me. And when I opened my first class at Yale uh, for the Center, I'll tell you what it, the Center is going to be doing. I had in a cellophane bag all of those scriptures cut out, and I had the Bible that they were cut out of and I poured them out on the table and laid the Bible out and some of the students literally started crying uh, I said this is what we do to the scriptures when we don't talk about the poor and more important to be engaged in challenging the policies and the systems that create poverty and hatred and injustice we literally cut the Bible to shreds mm. and oh my, and- my god and so, but what was amazing to me in this sentence is, it's almost as though the Lord said, okay, uh, since you want to help train, I'm going to open it up, not for you to be able to train maybe 10 or 20, but maybe 200 to 1,000 over a period of time. And so I'm leaving the pastorate to be at the Center for Public Policy and Public Theology. I went there and and, and Yale invited us to come. And you know, there's history that Howard Thurman was at Howard University, Niebuhr, was at Yale, and years ago in the 40s, they came together to develop a religious institute with the intentionality of raising up the clergy that would challenge Jim Crow through the lens of the uh, radical and militant love of theology of Jesus Christ. One or two of their students early on was Martin King and James Lofton. Wow. And a lot of people don't even know that history. And so this center, the Yale Center for Public Policy and Public Theology, sometimes they call it the Barber Center, is designed to take what I've tried to learn and study all these years and to put it in a center for training uh, seminarians, uh, uh, undergraduate students, to put together economists, theologians, businesses, sociologists, public health leaders in the same room to examine policy, to look at policy, to create policy. Every two years we're going to have a major, major forum, right in the middle of the presidential election, what should really be the moral issues that should be a part of the presidential and the dialogue about who we are electing uh, to the various offices. We have a summer program to engage students uh, with through repairs of the breach with practical uh, uh, placement where there are pastors actually engaged, not only in pulpit ministry, but in prophetic uh, social justice ministry in the community. Uh, this center, the goal is uh, is that eventually we're developing into a full institute. We will offer courses. We will offer policy analysis. Uh, and as I said, undergraduates and graduate students, because what was interesting to me, Paul, is we got on campus. Uh, the undergraduate students ca- called us and said, we want to talk to you. Mm. At, at Yale, and I said, oh, "They want to talk to a country preacher from the South." Yes, <laughs> and I did a lecture this past spring, and it came out in the Yale uh, paper that one of the young folk that came to the lectures said I came there as an atheist, and then I heard this Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm not atheist. I'm rethinking my whole. <laughs> I mean, this has happened. This. This past um, spring and when we started the class we you know we were told that we might have a few students for the first one so many students showed up that we couldn't even keep all of them there's this hunger and yes in fact, my hope has been buoyed being among these, y- these young folks so my work is going to be there and with repairs I'm, I'm a full professor, uh, professor excuse me, of, of practical uh, 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 theology and 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 I said to them, now I can't come in the academy and lead the work in the community because I would be undermining the very thing you you I'm coming to teach about. It has to be both and It's kind of like a surgeon at a, at a school who teaches surgery on Monday and practices surgery on Tuesday, then teaches surgery on Wednesday, practice. And so that's the model that we're using in the center. We're one semester old. Uh, we've had tremendous, tremendous uh, 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 support. Uh, I hope to bring you up. We're going to do a special lecture on on, on Walter Rauschenbusch and, and what his theologies ought to mean to us today. You know, I introduced the students, many of them who did not know about Walter Roush and Bush, did not know about the Social Gospel movement in one of my classes this semester. Mm. But I think every seminary.
0: Well, I listen this sounds so good and Yale is so fortunate to have you be a part of its broader mission uh, this is extraordinary um, you
1: and you know the history right you know that the history of Yale is that the former president the very first president was a apologist for slavery and so 200 years later to have this center at Yale you know and to be talking about developing even a Masters of Public Policy and Public and, not, and I'm not going there let me just say this Paul it's important because someone when I when I came to the school they said well he walks in the tradition you know of Dr. King and I said uh uh-uh. uh don't limit a person just because of their skin I love Dr. King I Dr. King but this tradition goes all the way back to the prophets it goes all the way back to the abolitionists white and black it goes all the way back to the social gospel movement. it goes all the way back to to even uh, women like you know Harriet Tubman and others, and, and and I had to say to them, this is not about a center that will just deal with racism. This is about a center that will look at public policy through the deep wells of theology and faith and our deep moral convictions of both faith and the Constitution, all policy, right? mm-hmm. all policy. Yes. Um, yes.
0: No, that is I mean, th- w- you know, what we're doing at Interfaith Alliance now is really looking at like to look at American democracy, the project of achieving our country, as Baldwin said, and um, imagine the role that religion should be playing as opposed to what sometimes the role that religion has played, um, recognizing the good and also what still needs to be done better and i I just am so grateful to you and um you for the wisdom of Yale with all its history. I think that that's part of the that's also part of the story is that you're willing to come there and be part of their redemption frankly and and show that there you know there is a way that a place like yale can can be redeemed for its past sins, and that's like an important lesson. Uh, also for our country, you know, in in this age where people are trying to erase history, you know, and not, you know, and, and insist that it's we're too fragile to look at our history. And in, and that's like one of the most pernicious um, things that's going on right now is we don't want to look at our history because it might hurt some feelings. Instead, what you're offering to Yale is we're going to look squarely at history. And yet, we're going to try to redeem it.
1: You know, and I think it's something else. I want to add another critique. Yeah, looking at history and and, and be a biblicist for a moment. See, because I think not only do people, so the forces that don't want to look at history, uh, are afraid of feelings being hurt. I think afraid of hearts being changed. Mm. you Don't you remember in the scripture <clears throat> when Jesus went to the to the tombs and and, and, and went across the, the sea? and uh, the guardians, and he went to the tombs, and it says that the demon ran out the meeting and tried to worship Jesus without being freed. And Jesus said, "Uh, uh, hush, hush. And then he began to ask the question, what's your your name? He made the demon face himself. And he says, legions. (laughs) And then Jesus was able to cast that demon out. That the man was freed, you know, mm-hmm. but there was a sense in which the demon didn't want to face its its origin. hmm hmm uh, That's right. There's a there's a sense in which I think I see a lot of people that don't want to face history, particularly racial history. Number it is number one. They already got children many times refusing to go along with with some of their past history and sins. I could tell you a story about that. But they know the power of a changed heart. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, remember when Jonah was sent? And Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh because just as soon as I go there and start talking about you, God, the Ninevites are going to change. I think there are people literally afraid of the history being taught in a way that it will cause people to see what's right. going on and why it needs to be changed. They're more right. not only about being offended. But of right. being driven to repentance, right? The, right. It makes no sense. I was looking at the guy who was DeSantis, Santos. Who, by the way, you think about a place like Yale? Yeah, Just Santos went to Yale, so did Mary Ellen. <laughs> mm, <laughs> yes. You know. So it's, it's it's that. But I was looking at him the other day, and i was saying, you know, this guy, uh, he's 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 a master at deflection. And what I mean by that is. Uh, the high level of poverty in Florida. He doesn't want folks to talk about that because they would then put him out because his policies haven't done anything about that. The high level of death you know, before COVID and during COVID, the the number of teachers leaving, the low teacher salaries, the the, the fact that he's blocked living wages, even people voted for it. He don't want people to see that. So what does he do? He deflects on uh AP clauses in in in, uh in in black history and trying to ban books which really make no sense because the books are already on Kindle and Google. I mean how you gonna really, really ban a book Mm -hmm. but in in the times in which we live. But all of that is a deflection because he knows that if the people I'm not talking about black all people really examine his policies over against our deepest constitutional values and our deepest moral, religious values, and over against the damage that his policies have done to everyday people, they won't accept his his leadership. He right. knows that right. when he first got elected. He got valid two percent. He was only elected by about one point seven percent of the vote. Paul, he and he knows that if poor, low wealth people come together in that state, just four percent of them could send keep him out of not only the governor's office, but any other thing he wants to run for. So these
0: folk are masters at deflection because right. of him, something that Jesus taught, the truth. Oh. I mean, there we go. Bishop Barber, thank you so much for speaking with us on State of Belief and for all that you are doing for our nation and the many, many people within it who you inspire and also who may not even know about you, but your work is touching them and their lives. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom and hoping all of us today. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II is president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Starting with this episode, we're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Now, this is very important. The podcast feed you're listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com newpodcast new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead. I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping the state of belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. Now, be sure to join us next week with June LGBTQI plus Pride Month well underway. We'll hear from an all-star group of faith and other leaders committed to taking part in the Faith for Pride campaign. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.